1: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, still bringing you Food Week on the podcast and on my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your DB radio, on your smart speaker, and on the Times Radio app. Our food fight today is red sauce versus brown sauce. Turns out, older people, 40% of older, over 65s like the brown sauce. Only 37% like the red sauce. Y- amongst young people, 71% prefer tomato ketchup. Only 11% like brown sauce. Leavers like the brown sauce. Remainers like the red sauce. All those stats on my Twitter account, at Matt Charlie or X, or whatever it's called uh, right now. Coming up on today's episode, quite a lot of booze actually. I've been to the Red Line, speak to Charlie Whelan, who uh, used to pop up the bar a lot when he was a spin doctor for Gordon Brown. I was in the Red Line. He was actually in the Highlands of Scotland, but he tells me lots of great stories. Including the night he was in the pub when he got a call from a very cross Tony Blair. We'll also take a look at the history of politics and alcohol with Ben Wright, the author and journalist. That's coming up in a moment. we we'll have the columnist in just a sec. On the subject of booze, Rishi Sunak, who is actually Teetotal, he went down to the Great British Beer Festival this week where, when it didn't go particularly well, he ended up pulling a pint but got heckled. Uh, this is what happened. Yep.
2: Two. So, gloves into the, That's it. Right,
1: So, now I'm joined by Laura Emson, who's the awards director for Camera. So, Laura, quite the day! Yes. You've been teaching the Prime Minister how to pull a pint.
2: I have. Yes. What
1: sort of student was he?
2: Actually, I was very impressed because he listened. He did actually follow instructions, and he did pour a perfect pint.
1: And, and what is the trick for people who don't know? What is the trick to pulling the perfect pint?
2: So the trick is to make sure you've got the glass at the right angle and you've got the right depth of pour to get a little bit of head on there but not completely take over with foam.
1: What was he pouring today?
2: He was pouring Wensleydale Black Dub, which he was quite excited to because that's a brewery in his constituency. constituency.
1: Do you feel like the Prime Minister's got the brewing industry's back right now?
2: I think the industry itself is really complex. And I think, quite a lot of the time, a lot of political interventions can be quite simplified and I think when you look at the difference around certain breweries and even the supply chain um, I think at the moment the package could be better and I know that was a good conversation that he had today I think he understands that it's a backbone of our country and as an industry and it's like a huge part of our history and it's a unique thing that we offer the world and I think when we put it that way I think he does get it but I think when it comes to the complexity I, I just think it gets lost a bit in sound bites.
1: And there was a little bit of heckling? There was. What was that all about?
2: Honestly I don't know. Okay. I just thought if I keep talking he'll <laughs> listen to me and I'm sure one of our excellent stewards will um, deal with the hecklers.
3: There have been more breweries that have shut down now in the last year than there were during COVID. I managed to kind of dodge that bullet, but now I'm a publican in, in Wimbledon. Yeah, just seeing uh, alcohol duty going up today, which as a group, the group that I work for, probably the biggest pub company in the country, uh, we've been bulk buying from our suppliers for the last two weeks, pre-empting the alcohol duty increase. And, and it's, a, it, it's a kick in the teeth to the consumer, really. Well, yeah. well to, to the entire industry. And, and that's why I heckle, because it's just uh, he's politicizing this lovely event for you know votes based on a you know a beer duty relief which is linked to car scale, not lagers and the general alcohol industry, the spectrum. So if you look at a lot of publicans in the in, in the sector today, cascale represents maybe two percent and the overall increase is 10.1% and, um, and that's going to be knocked on to, to the consumer. So in the last two weeks I've been partaking in uh, you know, price surveys against competitors in, in, in my local area and we will be raising our prices. Uh, within the next two months our prices will go up because of the decision by the government to raise alcohol
1: duty. So, what did you shout at the prime minister when he came down? He was pulling a pint and all. Yeah, the I, I just
3: I, shouted out. I, I just shouted out that it was, uh, you know, the, the irony that he's at this fantastic beer festival today, talking about beer relief
1: when alcohol duty goes up today. And what difference will it make to pubs and breweries across the country? Duty's going up on the top of all the other, you know, heated costs have gone up, grain costs have gone up for, brewery, you know, for breweries, and that's all being fed through. Look.
3: You've mentioned a couple of different contributors into, into the entire industry. So so brewing is a hugely energy intensive industry, very reliant on, on brands going up. That that That's one side of why there's been so many brewers shutting down. Then you look at the publican side. I mean, look, publicans are being absolutely lambasted left, right and center. I, I know of fellows in the industry who are taking out 50% of their lighting. So their pubs are 50% darker just to cut on energy bills. Uh, I'm in a position I don't have to do that that's fine but end of the day your big groups aren't going to just absorb that margin cannibalization of of, of profits it'll be passed on to the consumer so it's the consumer the the voting British public you're going to be absolutely pinched again yet again by and I don't really care for politics I'm I'm not conservative not left or whatever It's just these politicians are all lying scumbags at the end of the day, whether you're Labour, Conservative. People should be out in the streets of pitchforks at this point, going on to Parliament saying, you are all utter scum, they they are all self-serving, Yeah, I don't don't want to be using profanities but (laughs) it's it's, it's disgusting. Do you think it would be better if he just stayed away today, if he hadn't come? Yeah, he should have stayed away. Uh, I think I think all the politicians should have stayed away and they should actually go back to their constituencies and do, do a day's work, rather than be on this PR train of uh, how can we spin to politicise any kind of news release that's going on.
1: And that is Rudy Kaisler, who shouted at Wishy Sunak. Right, now on the podcast, it's time for The Columnists. The Columnists with Ali Burt, Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton on Times Radio. And Robert is here in the studio. Hello, Robert. Hello, Matt. And Alice Thompson's beaming in. Hello, Alice. Hi. Now, I should ask you both about the big, the big, so- the big question we're asking everyone as part of Food Week today. Red sauce or brown sauce, Robert? Uh, I didn't call it... It's tomato sauce. Tomato ketchup. Mean. Yeah. Protein,
4: yeah. Uh, I don't have either, but if I, I really don't like either one. But what? I guess I might occasionally have... If I were to have a bacon or a sausage sandwich, I would have brown sauce on it. Yeah. And what about if you're having chips? Uh... No, I'd I'd probably have uh, mayonnaise. Oh, okay. Yeah, like in a Belgian kind of way. Just very continental. (laughs) Very Belgian with (laughs) some beer and chocolate. Some nice pottery. Alice, brown
1: sauce (laughs) of tomato ketchup?
5: Uh, Mine's Heinz tomato ketchup and then mayonnaise too, actually. I like Hellman's mayonnaise. It has to be that way around. and then I quite like Branston pickle. I'm quite a sauce person, after
4: yeah, yeah, I like too. Pickle lily condiment. Yeah, you just stand on a pickle. I mean, after,
1: true, that is true, once it's got lumps, that's a condiment, yeah. isn't it, rather than a sauce? Yeah, I'm big on. Yeah. I'm big on
4: condiments. Yeah. Horseradish. After 40 years of smoking, horseradish is pretty much all I can taste. Anyway, so <laughs> I, I uh, it's spoonfuls of it. Yeah, no, it's true. I put horseradish on more or less everything. Yeah, oh, I Yeah, I like that radish. too. Yeah,
1: yeah,
2: but extra it, hot. Well, the only and,
4: thing on the radio is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> just listing sauces. <laughs> yes, brilliant. <laughs> mustard, English, English or French? Uh, mainly
1: English. Yeah, I think I dabbled too. with French a while. Yeah. I, I thought Dijon. I was the sort of person who'd have French, but basically, exactly.
4: You put your beret on and tried the Dijon for a while, and then you realized yeah. actually English was nicer.
1: But is it, what's the brown? What's the brown French mustard? Uh, well, there's you sort of get. You there's
4: the get seedy, CD one, isn't there? Well, there's the seedy. Oh, the one. brown one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To yeah that's Dijon. Pups. That's also yeah. It's Dijon. Is that pretending to be Dijon. Yeah, pretending to be Dijon.
5: Yeah, yeah.
4: And American mustard is, is rubbish, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, bright yellow. Yeah, Just that's doesn't,
5: disgusting. And
1: doesn't taste like mustard. No. No. <laughs> well, more, more of that as and when we get it. Right, yeah. now, because we... Well, sometimes people accuse us of being a bit negative on the show. So let's talk about something positive. Mm. A policy announced by a government which seems to have worked. <laughs> yes, good. Um, so this is uh, plastic bags. The average, Engli- the average person in England buys only seven single-use plastic bags a year less than a fifth of the number before the charge, the 5p charge, was introduced. It started off at 5p, then it became 10p, now covers all shops. As a result, the number of plastic bags has plummeted from 2.1 billion in 2016-17 to to 406 million, which is obviously still quite a lot, but that's better. Um, Now, last year, because we marked 10 years after it was introduced, and the Lib Dem peer Kate Palmer, who introduced it, Mm. uh, told me all about it.
6: There was a lot of opposition, but as you say, uh, fast forward now to 2022 and millions of plastic bags haven't blighted the countryside, and all the fossil fuels that are used to produce them haven't had to be used, because this simple scheme has been shown to work, and people like it.
1: Alice, a policy that works.
5: Well it's the same with seatbelts and smoking it's like we hate banning things but when we do it it does work weirdly so i have to say i'm one of those people that has quite a few bags for life um i do occasionally forget to bring a bag so i have to stack them up but i probably only got six whereas i say i would have had hundreds of plastic bags by now so yeah it's worked it's brilliant but i think i would go around banning a few more things probably
4: yeah it's true i mean uh, seat belts and smoking i was going to cite them and also uh, drink driving when mm. we were uh when we were I mean, that was as much sort of public information and kind of yeah, nudging yeah. as it was. I mean, the legislation was already there. Yeah. But something that was acceptable to the generation older than mine and sort of quasi-acceptable to my generation is now utterly unacceptable, drink driving. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's that's worked. I mean, yeah, it shows that uh, we shouldn't be too cynical and too fatalistic about never being able to... Passing any legislation that has an impact.
1: And what's interesting mm. is the 5p and now 10p, mm. it's not that much. No, I but... I mean, if you're going to go, you know, go into a big shop and spend 100 quid, if you're going to, you know, for instance, your big weekly shop, uh-huh. adding, what would that be, a pound... It's yeah. not that, you know, if you had, you know, all plastic bags. But it's the nudge and the, the friction yeah. and the guilt, factor. Yeah, the guilt factor. And maybe now you would... And using, if, yeah, using If you were in, the... if you were in Morrison's and you oh, so I've forgotten mm. all my bags, and you're filling all your shopping up in plastic bags, you'd feel a bit like yeah. a Wally.
4: And using a price mechanism, which in itself is not, not very much. Yeah. But using it as an indicator of something yeah. <coughs> you shouldn't be doing.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So... But so I suppose, Alice, they've tried to do that with the, with the sugar tax... If you're standing in the shop and you're looking, and a full mm-hmm. fat Coke is, I don't know, well, like eighty p, but a diet Coke is seventy five p.
5: It's not that much yeah, a difference, but it's do just more. enough nudge. Yeah yeah well it is i mean they know in mexico where they've had the best sugar taxes they just stopped drinking coca-cola and it was hardly difference. Mm-hmm. it was like it was five percent and then seven percent but it made that huge difference to them because they knew they weren't supposed <coughs> to have it so at the beginning they used to christen their children with coca-cola because it was considered mm-hmm. such a treat and now it's seen as something bad so i think that's part of it isn't the money it's the sense that you're doing do that something that wrong yeah.
1: that's where she soon asked yeah. isn't right, it he loves yeah, yeah, Mexican because it's got so much sugar in it. Oh, them. is that right? Yeah, yeah. gets right. it like imported or something? Right, flown in in one of his helicopters. Yeah, really
4: makes his trousers shorter. <laughs> yeah creeping up his ankle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did wonder that, because
4: there's, yeah, there's a thing in the papers today. He was on last week, actually, Derek That's when Guy. you said the thing about the red sauce versus brown sauce, the big debate that everyone's talking about. I thought we were going to talk about it. <laughs> I thought you were going yeah. to talk about
1: it. So Derek Guy, he was on last week, and he was telling us that, you know, he he thought that uh, Joe, because Joe Biden's suits are off the peg. Yeah. And he said they fitted him much better than which Richard said, he's oh, really got a lot of money. He's not that far from himself. But why is suits so... Weird. I wondered, actually, because they were so short, the, the
4: ones... Hannah Rogers, our fact, one, our, one yeah. about, a friend of mine on our fashion desk, was saying that it gives the illusion of making your legs look longer. Yeah. And he's a small guy. But I thought, I've read that the opposite, where if you have, like, trousers that go right to the floor, they make your legs look yeah. longer, so I don't know, but apparently...
1: But the ones in the pictures in the papers, today, they're so short, they look yeah. like they might be long shorts.
4: Yeah, yeah <laughs> or right. you? it looks call them? like you
5: put them in the machine. It's yeah. called
4: capri pants, Alice. There's capri pants or cigarette pants or something that were. Yeah, exactly. There. Yeah.
5: So they're basically Audrey Hepburn, but they're not exactly. Really he's Minister, Audrey Hepburn.
4: He? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's it's Roman Holiday. Maybe that's where yes, he's going. That's exactly. Maybe that's where he's going. You need some mm.
5: ballet pumps. Do you think we should get yeah. some ballet pumps to go with them?
4: <laughs> yeah, and a little beehive and a, and a little yeah c- c- cigarette. We
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs>
1: <Yeah. laughs> can't do that. Though. No, you can't. Sorry. Maybe a vape. Yeah. Alice, talking of going on holidays, you've written your column about uh, wild camping on Dartmoor.
5: Yeah, well, actually, I never really thought of going wild camping on Dartmoor, even though I'm only 20 minutes away. I have um, I spend quite a lot of time walking over it. I've never actually camped on it. But now, when I found out I couldn't, I suddenly desperately wanted to in that way. <laughs> that if you're banned from something, you think you Still need right. to. And I was going to go, but now we're allowed to again, which is lucky because it's pouring with rain here. And so you're not um, bothered. No, but I do think we should be allowed to, and I, I think it was mad at the landowner uh, to try and ban it because now, now everyone's going to go and do it. In fact, they've already started this sort of queues of people going now um, to, to sort of show they've got the right to roam, and and I think everyone should be allowed to go. And you know, I, I'd like the right to roam to come in, but I just think you need some responsibilities. said you can't all kind of go in with your picnic tables and your chairs and your you, you know, paint you paint a you, you, back.
4: you paint a bit of a picture of devastation with uh, your. Uh, chickens getting savaged by some somebody's dog and litter. Yeah, and that e- was bad. Excrement and is it is it that bad? I always thought people were pretty respectful in the countryside.
5: Well, most of the time, but I just went for a run today, and there were two McDonald's bags that just been thrown out of the window into the hedge. And you kind of think, why? Mm. I think it's because they feel worried about going home with a McDonald's bag when it's just about supper. Ah,
1: oh, right, <laughs> guilty, guilty, guilty visits yeah. sneaky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah, yeah. order to say that you've already eaten on the way mm. home. I once, because it's food week, um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, when we were at college, we used to go and like, uh, have a cake sometimes after, after college. And one no. day we went to Sainsbury's and we <laughs> sat in my car in the Sainsbury's car park. The two of us we ate a whole Victoria sponge. Fantastic. I,
4: when, I was a, when I was a student, and I, uh, I'm not sure anybody's ever done, I think I've gone a record here, yeah. I drank a whole cup of coffee just simply by dunking hobnobs in it. <laughs> So the, oh. so the, mu- the mug so never that, like touched my lips. Like, like a sponge, exactly. <laughs> wow. And there was a big packet. I think it was maybe 18, 18 <laughs> uh, milk chocolate knobs. Oh, they're my wow. favourite. And that would account for a whole cup of coffee.
1: Will it? A yeah. whole packet?
4: Yeah. yeah. If you, if you, obviously, you've got to be really careful. Yeah. I mean, you've got to have kind of... Really int- know
1: the tipping point for the
4: International dunk. class dunking
1: technique. <laughs> <laughs> I have got a lot I'll of practice We could have got some in. Yeah. 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 Now, Alice, you're lucky you're not here. In the nicest possible way, because (laughs) you're allergic to what we're about to do. Robert, you don't know what we're doing, do you? No, I don't know, but I'm not allergic to anything, so... Good, and you're game. Totally game, always. So, uh, Tiziana Di Costanzo is joining us in the studio. Good morning. Good
6: morning. Good morning.
1: Now, if I say you're from Horizon Edible Insects... That's right. That yep. gives, gives the game away a bit. Yep. So, tell us about Horizon Edible Insects.
6: Um, yeah, we, we're a small company um, which uh, were producing, farming and um, cooking with insects um, up until uh, Brexit came. Yep. And uh, from that point on, our company becomes become just a shell of what it used to be. Uh, <laughs> so we do still do cookery classes, but we are not allowed to uh, produce the insects that we use in the classes anymore. Um and why is yeah. that well uh edible insects has become a bit of a political issue in Britain, not only in Britain, some people that follow international news might have seen like in countries like Poland and uh, um France and so on they've even used the anti Uh, edible insect sentiment uh, as an argument uh, for trying to win elections. Um, In the UK, it's been a bit more subtle. uh, So the the anti-edible insect campaign has taken the form of a ban, uh, which took place in uh, December 2020. So at the end of uh, the Brexit transition period, where the Food Standard Agency basically said, uh, insects are not authorized anymore in the um, in the UK. Actually, in Great Britain, yeah. because Ireland was still protected, uh, Northern Ireland was still protected under the Northern Ireland Protocol.
1: So, you, so mm. they were banned. Then they were unbanned, <laughs> and now they're going to be banned again.
6: Yeah, Why? pretty much, pretty much. So basically, uh, since the Food Standard Agency introduced this um, regulatory approval process, which costs about £100,000, <laughs> uh, they basically wiped out all the opportunity for SMEs in the UK to be able to afford this um, application process. And they're given a deadline uh, of December 2023 to apply uh, for yeah. uh, approval. So, uh, So... so oh.
1: <coughs> it's it's quite nice. So so we're we're getting in just in time.
6: Yeah, yeah and you've bought
1: some things in for us.
6: That's that's correct. Yeah, Are I'm, you ready,
1: Robert? Yeah.
6: <laughs> so yeah, you're like are, you're choking are you, are you already. You haven't
1: been giving it no, up yet. No, no it's right. right. Come on then. What have we got?
6: Maybe it's a bit early for a morning, but anyway, here's some uh, uh, kicker, uh, guacamole uh, tartlets.
1: Oh, cheers. Guacamole tartlets. That doesn't sound very insecty. What else well, is in there? Oh
6: well, there's a lot of insects in there. Straight
1: in, not mucking about. Wallop. Hmm. Oh, there's like little um like a little uh, sort of um, canapé mm. a little pastry thing with some green guacamole um, with I'm mm. going to oh. say some lumps in it and a bit of red red something on top very good excellent I forgot we were on the radio I just ate it You're just and straight you, in I was, just, I was describing yeah, yeah, I know you, yeah. marvellous theatre of, of the mind yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. right here we go then well, that was very nice uh,
6: thank you yeah, yeah we've we've been serving them in a um, couple of the biggest uh, shopping centre in uh, in London and uh, we had like a hundred percent success rate everybody that tried them liked them so, so what, I'm, I'm, not I'm, even, I'm not surprised, surprised. about this
4: because I remember reading a few years ago that I, I thought insects were going to like be the protein is of that is part of me, the thing? protein of the future, you know and that we were as we we're going to eat less meat or animal meat and more more insects good why why who is is it like an insect rights movement? Or, what, or who's, who's, no, who's... who's who's no, who, the, Yeah, well, why is it being banned?
6: Well, the thing is, um, basically, the Food Standard Agency made what they... Well, oh, it's a fated yeah, mistake yeah. in banning them. We think yeah. there's a lot more behind it because, basically, we complained about... Uh, they misinterpreted the regulation uh, and we pointed it out to, you know, the then Secretary of State, uh, George Osborne, we've been to the FSA, yeah. but we're trying to explain, yeah. look, this is, uh, you know, you've read it wrong, <laughs> you should reread the, the law. But they they said, no, no, we haven't made a mistake until the BBC exposed them yeah. and then that's yeah. when uh, it was changed. So to eat, explain eat.
1: What, is in the, what is in what we've just eaten.
6: Okay, this is just uh, uh, guacamole, so avocado, and peppers,
1: and tomatoes, yeah. and, and uh, crickets. Crickets. cricket yeah. yeah. hey, guacamole,
6: yeah. guacamole.
1: Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> well, I liked it. Mm. I mean, I'd probably liked it without the crickets. You have slightly hidden the crickets in there, and not you? have smuggled them in. <laughs> sort of. Well,
6: I smuggled are you, are you how them would it, it, How would you know? How
1: would well, you know? Well, I don't know. Because you don't know what cricket tastes like. But I suppose it's got... Um, it's got a bit of texture to it, isn't it? It's got knees, hasn't it? Yeah. Because that's how they make the noise, isn't <laughs> make it? Nicer. Yeah. Alice, are you are you happy or sad or not here?
5: Oh, I'm feeling very left out. I've only mm. ever I have actually had a witchety grub, but I have to say I don't think I'd um go for the locusts. Right, what like have we got it. next? Okay. Some balls.
6: Well this is uh yeah, I mean if you think this is getting get a bit on really a celebrity. Is. Now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is your dessert. Thank you. just it's dessert, So okay. it's a protein ball. Protein uh, ball, yeah, Oh, lovely. Which has got uh, coconut and uh, about half a I teaspoon well, of. Um, you don't like coconut? I don't
1: like coconut. Oh no! But right, anyway, le- do- for the purposes, Ooh. of... it's the only thing. It's a big. Oh, it calls a big our house. The only thing I don't like coconut.
6: Yeah, lovely. Yeah, everything. Oh, that's <laughs> a shame.
1: Gone straight in again. Mm-hmm. Robert, yeah, mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. these are. Like, so this looks you know, like a uh, like a sort of truffle-sized ball rolled in coconut. Yeah. Here we go. This is nice. I mean, it's a coconut, I'm not a fan. Well, of I like coconut, so, oh. mm. so tell us what's, what's,
4: the, uh, what in the, what's head the creepy, creepy quality.
6: Um, yeah, that's uh, cricket powder. Again. Cricket powder? Well, more cricket. Yeah. Oh. yeah, because, I mean, uh, although most edible insect species are going to be banned again in December, mm-hmm. uh, there is some hope for crickets because one uh, group of companies applied for it, whether it will be eventually approved or not by the Food Standard Agency is another matter, but in the interim, we can still uh, continue to cook them and sell them
1: it's got some fruit in it
6: yeah this is fruit um, and uh, like raisins or something uh, yeah raisins and mm. dates and uh, coconut and... do you know what, that's
1: actually quite nice even though I don't delicious. really like the coconut normally yeah. <laughs> absolutely love it. You, you want another one don't you
4: no, I'm good actually. I'm yeah. All right. I mean, I did like it, but I mean, you know, I'm watching my weight. Are you?
1: Yeah. <laughs> sure, I'll have another. Can I have another um, uh, guacamole? Baca, okay. Yeah, guacamole. I like those.
6: You're addicted already, see. <laughs>
1: but, uh, sorry, now, um, what else? Um, how do you get? How do you? How do you catch the crickets? Do you? Do you how do you round them all up?
6: Well, they have to be uh, bred into uh, very sort of hygienic mm. conditions. Indoors. And compli- so they're not, indoors. Wild,
1: they're not wild crickets. They're not
6: wild. No, no. I wouldn't recommend anybody uh, goes around in their garden catching crickets and other insects um yeah so it 's quite a straightforward process uh, You can stack them vertically so you can grow quite a lot of insects in mm. a very uh, small space I want- we used to do um we used to uh, breed mealworms mealworms are even better mm. uh, We actually got some funding at the time from the um, London mayor to for our efforts to reuse locally locally produced waste and make mm. it into uh, mealworm protein. That project also had to be shelved, unfortunately, because of this, this issue. Um, yeah. So. The,
1: the idea is, the appeal of this, is that you can get protein from something and it's, it's much less environmentally impactful than... You know, breeding cows, mm. essentially. Correct,
6: yeah. It's basically, we were getting uh, surplus from the local fruit shops, mm. uh, feeding it to the insects, and then using our own insects for the cookie class and also oh, selling God. it to the local community. So it was all like the intention was to promote insects as a way, uh, you know, towards our net zero yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. goals. And and do and it
4: like, in an urban environment. Yeah, in a yes. environment. Instead,
6: oh, yes. now uh, we have been, you know, for a cookie class, we've been taking some from Denmark, some from the Netherlands. Some people are getting them from further afield yeah. because they're cheaper. So what could have been like a half a, half a meter of um, food mile from us to uh, yes. from the house to the mm. shed is now you know ten thousand yeah. miles across the world.
1: Is there anything that you wouldn't eat?
6: Um, in terms of insects, I don't like silkworms. Um, no. I don't no. like. where'd do you uh, start on
4: silkworms? Yeah, no, no, I don't. Want, <laughs> you wouldn't know what they'd be getting up to, would you, once you'd swallowed
6: them? <laughs> I <laughs> <All sorts of, laughs> don't yeah. like black uh, black soldier fly uh, lava which is something that's actually been pushed as a food fee, uh, feed for um, animals at okay. the moment, but also for uh, humans. I don't like that. it's no. Too fishy. Don't, don't really mm, like. Yeah. Don't really like that.
1: Well, thank you for bringing them in. It was delicious. Yeah, great. Thank you. I cricket, it it, guacamole. Yeah, yeah, seems absurd that you were invited.
6: You're invited being you're mm. to um, uh, cookery classes anytime.
1: Lovely. We've got that. Sure, Lovely. Robert Grattan and Alice Thompson there. And of course, you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, I'm off to the Red Line.
5: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. It's a short walk from the House of Parliament just up Whitehall towards Downing Street. In fact, it's almost exactly equidistant between the two. Uh, I've got sort of Parliament just behind me. Uh, The gates to Downing Street I can see across the road to the left and just coming up in front of me on the right-hand side is the Red Lion. Perhaps the most famous pub in politics, certainly in Westminster. It's where, over the years, journalists have congregated after a hard days' work, it's where journalists have met uh, politicians occasionally, but more for not spin doctors. And it's uh, what has been imparted over a pint, or maybe even two, over the years uh, in this uh, pub, uh, really has occasionally changed the course of uh, political history. So in the interest of research—I should probably go in. Hi, go part that one, please. Please. £6.50 for a pint it was enough to make your dad's hair curl those sorts of prices there's been a pub here for nearly 800 years of one sort or another when it became the red line uh, centuries later Dickens was a regular here. he of course was a, was a sketch writer a reporter in the uh, house's of Parliament apparently the pub landlady was a kind hearted soul whose attitude towards him was admiring as well as compassionate and because of its position between uh, Downing Street and the House of Parliament uh, over the years I think every Prime Minister they claim every Prime Minister up until Edward Heath has been served a pie here Churchill came here Clement Attlee came here for a drink as well uh, their website boasts that every child shall catch a glimpse of some of our government's elite in the bar uh, we're not quite uh, so sure about that in fact uh, the man who's propped up the bar here over the years is one Charlie Whelan who was a spin doctor for Gordon Brown for many years uh, but now uh, couldn't it be further away um, from the red light but to the power of technology, uh, I can speak to you now, Charlie. You're a long way away.
8: I live up in the Highlands of Scotland. Wow! Uh, so I'm sort of near Town on Spey. Yeah, I've been here for 20 years.
1: Do you miss the red line?
8: <laughs> no, of course not. Oh, no, I only miss London a bit. Like, but I go back quite a lot for the cricket and the football. So,
1: so tell me about the um, the work that you did in this in this pub behind me.
8: Well, m- m- mostly. The Red Line was more of a pub for sort of Friday nights, so you finished finished a week and quite a lot of the civil servants from the Treasury would go there because if you look opposite where you are now, that's the Treasury. Well, I think it's still the Treasury
1: anyway. Yeah, it is still the Treasury. There's a lot of departments there now.
8: And also, you know, you get fed up with the bars in Westminster after a while and it's nice to go out somewhere where it's not just all MPs and hacks and there's a
1: few normal people. Yeah, there aren't that many normal people in Westminster. <laughs> Tell me about some of the moments that where you were here in the Red Lion. I mean, the, probably the most famous is the Euro, isn't it? Yes. You killed off the Euro with a glass of white wine spritz in your hand.
8: Yeah, well, I it wasn't quite as simple as that. I mean, <laughs> th- this story about the Euro, oh, the Red Lion or the Lion Rouge, as we used to call it. Basically, what had happened is Gordon clearly didn't want us to go into the Euro. I think Tony was either neutral or did Mandelson did, I know. But it was something that we really needed to kill. You know, we needed to kill the idea that we were going to the Euro. So we came up, there's this great weed with your um, old colleague, Phil Webster. Yeah. So uh, Phil was always sort of in the know and he sort of really sort of knew, well, because we had told him that we weren't going to the Euro, but we promised him the story when we were going to announce it. So we organized an interview (laughs) <laughs> with Phil and uh, and Gordon Brown. I don't think the interview actually ever took place, but it was a sort of uh, a series of words that we agreed um, that would, when the Times put on the front page, make it quite clear that we weren't going to go into the Euro. You know, I was told by Gordon that this has been clear with Tony, and so I wasn't worried about it, except that we had to clear the article with Alastair Campbell because we'd had a few minor fallout, shall we say, uh, about uh, stuff we'd been doing. And we'd agreed with a meeting with Tony and Gordon you know, a few weeks before that, any stories, we'd make sure that the other side were OK with it. I'd sent the offending article to Alistair Campbell, who said, yeah, that was fine. So uh, the story goes off. Obviously, uh, everyone else will be interested in it. So I rang up the editor of The Sun to make sure that when the times dropped, that he knew that was, it was a kosher story and to follow it up. So having done all that, I set off for the red line for my Friday spritzer, a few pints of Guinness and else I was drinking at the time. I suppose about the time the newspapers dropped, I don't know what time that was in those days, about nine o'clock. My phone started ringing, obviously. <laughs> yeah, we did have mobile phones in those days, Matt. And I uh, and, uh, answered the phone and it's number 10. So I thought, oh dear, you know, what's, you, know, you know, I don't normally get calls off Tony Blair. So I went outside the pub, found a little private spot. And,
1: so you didn't um, at least put your drink down before, to take the call from Tony Blair?
8: Well, no, I might have had my spritzer in my one <laughs> handbook. <but, you> know. <laughs> 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 and uh, so I went for a quiet spot over the other side from the pub, just from where you're sitting. There's a little alcove in a place there. And, uh, ten, what what's going on, Charlie? I said, what do you mean, what's going on? He, he says, at the time, to say, we're not going here. I said, but we're not. And he went, what do you mean we're not? I said, well, you know, it's been agreed. What's been agreed? I said, I said, have you spoken to Alistair? He I, I can't get hold of Alistair. So really, couldn't get hold of Gordon and way And anyway, he was just completely shocked. Gordon later told me that Tony Blair would never was shocked all his life to be told by some half drunk spin doctor from the Red Lion that, that we weren't going in the Euro. He did ring back again. He, you know, because he couldn't get hold of he couldn't get hold of Alastair Campbell. I mean, for me, the big story was where on earth was Alistair Campbell when all this was happening. I mean, you know, maybe he hadn't been lazy with tony blair on this story i don't know but i think what happened after that is journalists you know as they want to do as they, as they like to do sort of embellish the story a bit and said you know i was briefing this out loud in in the pub in westminster but
1: uh, it was actually all a done deal by that point
8: yeah the real story was that i was speaking to tony blair and he was sort of not very happy about the situation
1: your relationship with alcohol and you know anybody who's read damien mcvide's book spin doctor later for Gordon Brown there was a lot of alcohol involved in politics then, in a way that isn't quite the same now and I think yeah, there's probably I pluses mean... and minuses of that in terms of both you know uh, building up relationships with with colleagues but also you know probably wasn't wasn't wholly healthy it's a remarkable thing that you got through all of that alive
8: <laughs> <laughs> I was drinking spritzer so I could remain oh,
2: sober. Oh,
8: um, yeah it's interesting you say that but we didn't drink at work. I mean, it, it, so if you know what I mean. So we, I was down the pub to have a drink, or in the Press Gallery Bar, because yeah, you know, I was quite shocked while I learned about what was happening in Number 10, you know, with gate and all that, because. We never drank in the office. I mean, it just—it would never have occurred to us to have any drinks in the office. It was, it, I found that quite shocking for someone who spent a lot of time in bars. But yeah, there was a bit of more of a drinking culture. I mean, you yourself, Matt, you're under much more pressure today because you've got to do all the social media and I get your times and I get updates all through the day. Yeah, yeah. So you wouldn't have so much time for drinking. But in those days, of course, uh, the, the hacks had a lot more time to drink as well.
1: Uh, and how do you, having been there right from the beginning, you know, the the, the early days of, of New Labour and Gordon Brown and the Treasury and so on, lots of people drawing parallels with 97. Is it is it like 97 right now? Is is Rachel Reeves the heir to to Gordon Brown?
8: <laughs> yes, certainly Rachel's the best one we've had since Gordon. I think best shadow chancellor we've had since Gordon. Apart from Ed Balls, of course. Sorry, forgot about that.
1: Um, <laughs> who uh... who you worked with when <laughs> he was a special advisor to Gordon Brown, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you do yeah. have to say that.
8: Yeah, it's, it is different, though. It is different. I mean, I, you know, it it the, the similarities is, is that we do expect Labour to be the next government, and we did then, certainly. And, of course, our, our big fear wasn't really losing. It was just complacency. So I suspect that's what they're worried about, the complacency.
1: And, and there was such a war on that when it was back, you know, what, 25, 26 years ago, the, the not taking anything for granted and being... Ruthless message discipline, although occasionally briefing against Team Tony.
8: No, no, no. No. <laughs> it's, no, it's ruthless messaging. You know, I mean, we might have had a few fun and games in government, but in opposition, there was never really, you know, and at the time I was going for Gordon, it's quite clear, you know, Gordon was the economy and whatever he said went. I mean, there was no question of consulting anybody else, and even, even in government. And that was sort of the the real deal with Gordon and Tony was that Tony would let Gordon get on and do the economic stuff, you know.
1: uh, Charlie, thank you so much for joining me for this trip down memory lane. I'm sorry you're not here, I might have bought you a drink. Um...
8: <laughs> but Matt, I would this time, I don't drink in the afternoons anymore, so you
1: probably would Well, in that case, I'll just raise my pint and say, uh, cheers to you, Charlie and former spin doctor to Gordon Brown. Uh, you in the Highlands of Scotland and me in the red line, just across the road from your old stomping ground of the treasury. And Danish uh, Street. Thanks very so much for joining us. Old Times Radio. So that was Charlie Whelan, Gordon Brown's former spin doctor, telling me about the history of the famous boozer, the Red Lion. But of course, one of the themes running through all this is alcohol in politics. Ben Wright is the journalist and author of The Art of Political Drinking. He told me all about how alcohol for a long time has oiled the wheels of politics. I asked him which Prime Minister was the most prolific drinker.
7: Well, probably Pitt the Younger uh, back in Georgian England, who was, I think, the second longest serving prime minister and was dead at 41 after a short life of huge drinking. Uh, He was recommended that he needed to drink vast amounts of port every day for his health, but it clearly contributed to his early death. I think he was probably the most alcoholic, drink-sodden prime minister that there was. But there have been many. Uh, Robert Walpole, the first prime minister, he had a very fine... Wine collection, one of the one of the biggest in the country, through to the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century. herbert asquith was was a massive drinker, and uh, I think was the last prime Minister to be seen drunk in the House of Commons itself. He, of course, was the Prime Minister that led Britain through well, the first part of the First world War. And the public got to know about his drinking and it became quite apparent and it was one of the reasons that he left office a bit early. But there's a really interesting diary entry that I found doing the research for my book where Winston Churchill observes Herbert Asquith in the Commons in April 1911. Clearly, clearly drunk, slurring, could barely sit up in his seat. And Winston Churchill wrote, a letter to his wife in April 1911 saying it's an awful pity, only the persistent Freemasonry of the House of Commons prevents a scandal. But he did soldier on in office for another three or four years after that. Winston Churchill, of course, I think is everybody's, is the most well-known enjoyer of alcohol (laughs) in in politics. And it's, uh, I, I was skeptical that his consumption was as prodigious as legend claimed. But reading the books, talking to Boris Johnson, who studied him closely, I think he really did drink a remarkable amount of booze through an average day. He'd often have a glass of wine with his breakfast, there'd be champagne at lunch, uh, brandy after dinner, and then throughout the day, he'd be sipping whiskey and soda. He was a sipper, not a guzzler. That's That's what Roy Jenkins, one of his biographers, thought about Winston Churchill's drinking, but it was enormous. I thought for the book, I might try and attempt a day drinking like Winston Churchill, but I bottled it. I didn't I didn't do it in the end. He <laughs> was the he was the he, I think he was the last huge prime ministerial drinker, but there are people like Carol Wilson, who was definitely dependent on brandy towards the end. The spur for doing the book was actually Tony Blair's uh, autobiography, where he agonized and talked about his own reliance on having a gin and tonic and half a bottle of wine towards the end of a day to help him unwind. And he felt this was becoming a bit of a a problem and uh that was the spur to looking at this whole subject
1: it's interesting because i remember when blair's book came out and he, he was talked about you know was it a bit much having half a bottle of wine and lots of people reflected then is that all uh, but obviously well, they, they, were weren't fetish- so many, scottish- they weren't so necessarily running, running the country
7: Yeah, scottish mp's i think in particular were incredulous that he thought this was a problem
1: <laughs> <laughs> is that partly a reflection of society when you had your churchills and your asquiths and your walpoles or whatever who were clearly drinking huge amounts was that just in keeping with the broader society of the time and actually today you know politicians are a bit more abstemious and that's probably true of broader society.
7: Yeah, I think that that is true. People drank more then they were less aware of the effects it was having on their health. But I think the business of politics I mean what Winston Churchill was leading Britain through the second world war but the business of politics wasn't quite as frenetic and scrutinized and public as it is now. And so you could get away with drinking that sort of much without any public judgment, opprobrium or or scrutiny. But up until the 70s, you had people like Roy Jenkins, who was a Chancellor of the Exchequer, who would go and deliver a budget statement, having had a free course meal for lunch, a bottle of Margot, and would then totter down to the Commons to deliver a statement. I think it sort of ended. That's that really... Heavy drinking ministerial, prime ministerial culture started to drain away by the end of the 70s, early 80s. You couldn't be a serving politician now, a frontline politician, and drink the sort of quantities of booze that previous generations of politicians did.
1: I mean, Rishi Sunak is a, is a teetotaler through choice. He doesn't like alcohol. Is he the first one? Have we had teetotal prime ministers before?
7: Lloyd George was pretty teetotal. I think Jim Callaghan was. As well, they're 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 definitely the exception to the rule. And one thing I discovered is that most prime ministers, recent prime ministers anyway, tend to drink a little bit more the longer they're in office. (laughs) I didn't get to ask David Cameron 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 about this, but certainly someone like Harold Wilson, Tony Blair, Mrs. Thatcher, she definitely relied on uh, a glass of Bell's whiskey in the evening. Curled up on the sofa in Downing Street with her husband, who is a massive drinker, uh, with her closest aides to unwind, to get the day in perspective, to sort of you know put the put the, the stresses of the day behind. She she absolutely needed that whiskey to to help her get through the job.
1: Do you think it's changing? I mean, the, you know the bars in Parliament are less busy. The press bar doesn't even exist anymore. I know there's a bit in your book about how. On the was it the day the confidence vote in the Callaghan government, the the bars were shut it because of dry. strikes. They ran dry. You <laughs> couldn't even get a drink. It was extraordinary. But these days, you know, there isn't a press bar like there was. You know, there's much more it's just, it is a more professional working environment. But actually, politics is such a people business, and for lots of people, alcohol in you know in good you know in right sort of measure helps to, does help to oil the wheels of politics.
7: It does and it always, it always has. Politicians and journalists are incontinent gossips. Uh, it's, it runs through the business of doing politics and alcohol clearly helps oil that gossip and the social side of politics. I mean, when I wrote the book, I thought it was a book that, well, it concluded that the days of the epic drinking were over, that it was all, it was petering out. Then of course we had Sue Gray's report into lockdown <laughs> breaking parties in Downing Street. And her remarkable sort of e- exploration of wine time Fridays and suitcases of booze and drunken, raucous parties in number 10. We had recently the Chris Pinscher drunken groping scandal at the Carlton Club. I mean, both those incidents, both those episodes ha- helped bring down Boris Johnson, of course, who himself, and I interviewed him for the book before he was prime minister and leader of the party, is a, is a believer in the beneficial effects of of alcohol, he thinks it's it's a jolly good thing, really. Although he told me it could be a treacherous friend, uh, a judgment I'm sure that he <laughs> stands by now. But so <laughs> I, I mean, I, I was surprised the extent to which that boozing culture in politics has been revealed once again. I thought it was I thought it was petering out, but there was an interesting piece by a former special advisor, now journalist Peter Cardwell, uh, who talked about his experience as a special advisor in, in recent years and how booze just runs through all the transactions that you that you have you meet journalists after work for, for a drink there are drinks at the end of the day there are the endless receptions particularly in the summer matt and i'm sure yeah. you don't go anywhere near them no, but uh, you know every everything think tank every lobby could be group, literally
1: out every uh, night
7: you could be out every night drinking free booze uh as much as you want for about two months through the summer and you know the summer is is the most sort of intense moment of that sort of political drinking in Westminster, but you can find a free drink pretty much every night of the week in Westminster. I do think, though, it has changed a bit. And yeah, the, the bars are not as full as they used to be. I interviewed the now late but legendary Press Association photographer Chris Moncrief, for whom there is a bar named after, of course, in Westminster. And he remembered the days when the Strangers Bar, for instance, which used to be the horn to old Labour MPs from, from the northeast, in the sixties and seventies, he remembers it as a real spit and sawdust place. It was nicknamed the Kremlin because it was packed full of Labour MPs (laughs) where there would just be drunkenness every night, fights and brawls. He told me that there used to be a little sign, an arrow two inches above the ground, (laughs) pointing the way to the door that just said way out above it to help MPs crawling out on their hands and knees. (laughs) Now you wouldn't see that, you wouldn't, you would not see that now. But on a Thursday night, uh, go to the Sports and Social, nip into the Strangers Bar on a balmy summer's evening, go on to the House of Commons Terrace, and you will see MPs, their staff, journalists, having a good time and drinking Quite a bit. And it's still the case that Parliament has more places to drink, surely, than any other workplace in the country.
1: That was Ben Wright, the journalist and author of The Art of Political Drinking. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. But for now, for me, Matt trolley's goodbye.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.